Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Jessica Chiang, founder and managing editor of Eco Business, and I'm excited to introduce our EB Podcast, a series of discussions about the world of sustainable business in Asia Pacific. Today, we're here in our studio at the SDG Collaborative in Singapore. The SDGs stand for the Sustainable Development Goals, a set of development targets adopted by members of the United Nations that address issues such as poverty, hunger and inclusive growth. This podcast series, Let's Write the Future, is supported by ABB. And in this episode, we will be focusing on an exciting topic, the future of innovation. Our guest for today's podcast is founding CEO of SG Innovate, Steve Leonard. Steve is a well-known tech leader with a wide range of experiences, having played key roles in building several global technology companies. In his current role at SG Innovate, which is under the purview of Singapore's National Research Foundation, Steve is tasked with building an organisation that helps entrepreneurs take their work in science and technology R&D into the commercial market. Prior to this, Steve served as the Executive Deputy Chairman of the Infocom Media Development Authority, the statutory board with various responsibilities for the technology and telecommunications environment in Singapore. Steve, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. We're grateful that you're taking the time to have this conversation on what we think is really exciting um, and also to be looking at the convergence between technology, entrepreneurship and solutions that will address the world's greatest challenges. So the future of innovation, that's a big topic that's high on the agenda for governments around the world. We're really interested to know what does that mean for you and how do you see the world responding to it? Well, we think of innovation in a couple of different ways. And personally, I think of it as a continuum. I think of innovation meaning everything from the shape of a shampoo bottle and how does it stack more effectively on a shelf through to something that might change the world in terms of health. So innovation can be what we call disruptive, and I know that's a term that we'll be talking about, or it can be maybe more incremental. So I really think that innovation is great in everything, and I'd like for us to continue thinking about new ways to do a lot. But I think innovation is often overused, and everything that's even a minor change is somehow labeled innovative. So I think business models can be innovative. I think there's products that can be innovative. And I think how we think of things can be innovative. So what I'd love to do is unpack some of that in the discussion with you. Oh, fantastic. That's really good. So in terms of, you know, what it means for Singapore and Asia, can you give us some perspectives of what you think are some of the broad trends and where is innovation going in this region? Well, I think the really important place for us to start is more around what are the problems that we're all facing as humanity. So we know with an aging population, healthcare has to change, transportation has to change, how we live has to change, just in terms of the type of housing, for example, the type of food and how do we move food around. So there's a whole range of really tough issues. So for me, innovation is more how do we think of tackling those issues, not so much that we are uh, trying to bring a new product to the market because it's economically valuable, although that's great, but more how do we help people live healthier longer lives. And so in Asia, an aging population and densely crowded environments are two really tough problems. And we're going to have to think of new ways to tackle those. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, in your role at SG Innovate, um, you know, there's this term that keeps coming up and that's deep tech, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the solutions and innovation we're seeing is in there. Can you maybe explain to our listeners, like, what does that mean? And, and where is, is deep tech going? Well, we think of deep tech as an area which is um, perhaps technology that not everybody can approach. It's, it's great and we love the fact that there's entrepreneurs that want to build more mobile applications, more ways of thinking about efficiencies in the workplace and so on. And that's important. When we think about this area that we're calling deep tech, 
tends to be born out of science research, tends to be an area in which far fewer people can be involved. So we think about machine learning or computer vision or satellite communications. So by definition, the technology we would call a deeper level of, of technical intensive uh, work. Uh, there's more PhDs involved, tends to be more university originated or research uh, park originated. That's the area that we'd like to really be involved in. We think the work in that space in those spaces is going to ultimately be much more important to the future of all of us than whether we can make a more efficient way to book a, a table in a restaurant. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Can you give us some specific examples of this, these deep, deep tech uh, solutions and how do you see them solving some of the worst challenges? Well, let's think about healthcare for a moment. When we think about the fact that there are millions of medical images every year and we know that radiologists have to interpret those images. And there's been lots of discussion about whether computer vision or artificial intelligence will replace radiologists. And it's not our goal to replace anybody. It's our goal to complement and supplement. So we know that if there's millions of images and there's only a certain number of radiologists in the world, there's always going to be constraint. There's also the fact that unless you're having access to a high quality hospital, you may not benefit from that type of technology anyway. So how can we use tools such as image recognition or computer vision to bring that capability to less developed areas, to a rural population in any particular country? And then we think about the fact that that still costs a lot of money. How do we use technology to bring that uh, to a place where there's a, a lower cost device, ultrasound being an example. There are handheld ultrasound devices that can capture a medical image. And now the question is, can we use artificial intelligence to help someone on the ground interpret that image, diagnose a tumor at an earlier stage than might otherwise be possible? Today, that would require more of a hospital infrastructure, a qualified radiologist, and, and so on. We think that these types of tools will dramatically improve the quality of healthcare that an aging population, perhaps in a rural environment, can benefit from. That's hundreds of millions of people. Mm -hmm. So that's the type of example where we're wanting to back some founders that are currently working in that technology. Mm -hmm. We have a team that's trying to do that, and our goal is to help them get as far down the road as, as we can because we think it's an important problem. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So as you know, it is considered quite new, I mean, relatively, um, but have you seen any successful companies that have emerged from your organization? Can you share some examples? Well, we're working early stage. So okay. the answer is not yet. Not uh, yet. We've been at this for just under a year and a half. Mm -hmm. But here's what we have so far. We have 26 teams that have been working to build companies. So out of all of the hundreds of candidates that have come forward, there are 26 teams that have gone on to form a company, mm -hmm. uh, received investment funds, were an investor in all of those teams, mm -hmm. and we're bringing in market money, uh, market venture capital, so that those teams can grow. The examples that I shared, such as image recognition for strokes. So if there are people that have had a stroke, normally one in four is at risk of reoccurring with a stroke. There's a team that's using an ultrasound artificial intelligence mechanism to decide which of those four might be most highly at risk for a reoccurrence. Mm -hmm. That's a hard problem to solve today, and they're working on that. Mm -hmm. There's also teams that are trying to understand uh, image recognition for tumor diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a lung x-ray or a mammogram or a liver x-ray or a CT scan, how can this technology 
help doctors better diagnose at an earlier stage. We're working with the team in that. Water purification, mm -hmm. using chemicals to purify is a current process. There's a team working on doing that with electricity. And we think that that will be a breakthrough because it reduces the chemical load that's in our water supply as, uh, as human beings. Mm -hmm. So all of those teams are working. And what we're trying to do is uh, help them get forward. Autonomous vehicles, mm -hmm. uh, robotics, uh, satellite communications. So out of the 26 teams that I mentioned, all of those are working to bring their first product to the market. Some have customers already, some are still in the stage of acquiring their first customers. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. What do you think is the biggest obstacle for these companies to turn their ideas in the lab to something that's commercial in the market? Because that's the big question, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for us, these things are always thought of in a couple of steps. We like to think of things using an alliteration, like three C's. So we think of it as curiosity, courage, and confidence. So curiosity for us is what drives research. And if you're curious about a topic, how can you pursue that and learn more? But to bring it to the market tends to be a function of uh, the confidence and the courage. So we have a lot of great researchers that would like to be researchers, would like to be in an academic environment, but some would like to see their work go on to make an impact in, in the real world, so to speak. That's the courage moment. Do they have the courage and the confidence to leave their academic path, seek funding, work with co-founders and try and build a company? Our job is to try and work with those men and women that have made that decision. And in some cases, we try and help them make that decision. They're not quite sure. And we say, here's why we think you could be amazing. So the step is less about the prototyping. It's less about the manufacturing. It's less about the distribution. Those are all important points. Sometimes it's just having the confidence and the courage to take that first step. Mm -hmm. So that's the area that we're trying to be helpful. Okay. So in terms of the venture capital markets, I mean, what is the appetite for, for the solutions that you've mentioned? Is it hard to find funding or are you seeing that the money is flowing very easily? Um, it is hard to find funding, primarily because these are tough problems and they take a long time to solve. So for us, uh, the challenge is more around helping investors understand that there may not be the same exponential growth that they would see in a consumer-facing app download. If you can measure something that says, today I have 10,000 and tomorrow I have 100,000 and next week I have a million, it's relatively easy for an investor to try and quantify what they think that might mean. When you're talking about working with computer vision in mammogram, that takes months and months or years to try and refine the models, improve the accuracy, have doctors be comfortable adopting it, uh, have the insurance companies be comfortable reimbursing it. So that's different and an investor may not be as comfortable. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Do you think that there's enough talent, I mean, in Singapore and in Asia to kind of take these technologies to the next level? Because the whole conversation happening now in Singapore as well as whether we're skilling people with you know the necessary um, education and, and skills to kind of take on these jobs. Yeah, it, it's a challenge. The investor that I spoke with earlier this morning, in fact, who wants to come from San Francisco and do some things in Singapore, is talking about that same point, which is, is there enough talent? And now his point is, there's not enough talent in San Francisco either. And when I was in Tel Aviv not long ago, the discussion there was not enough talent also. So I don't think that it's anything specific or unique to Singapore or any country. I think the challenge is, some of these technologies are pretty complex and there are fewer people that would have the skills today 
But I also think that there's a huge wave of people learning, and I think there'll be more and more talent going forward. And candidly, some of these systems that we're talking about will also be more automated and may not need as many people to be worrying about building every aspect of it as they do today. So talent, I think, has always been a constraint for anything that we've done as, as humanity. It's just at different phases, the supply catches up with some of the demand and then sometimes exceeds it, meaning there's more people in a space that know something than might be needed. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. So on a related note, I want to talk a little bit about culture because, you know, there's a lot of um, questions around like when is Singapore going to produce the next Spotify or mm -hmm. the next Apple and you know even in countries like Indonesia you see Tokopedia and you know big companies coming up so are we going to see something like that what do you think needs to happen in our entrepreneurship uh, ecosystem? I, I don't know is the honest answer but I, I don't spend any time worrying about it because I think the results will be what the results will be and, and in that sense we don't naturally have a big market you know Indonesia is already a big country 200 plus million people. So if you do something, then the chance of it being a big company is, is reasonably there. I think the bigger question for Singapore is we have amazing education, primary, secondary, tertiary. We have amazing research. We have a stable government and a long-term commitment to funding R&D. So we have world-class scientists from around the world that have chosen to do their work here in Singapore. The question for us now is how do we turn that into something which is impactful both from an economic perspective and from a human perspective how that will be valued by the market i don't know and uh, as much as for example the first cto for spotify now calls singapore home and he and his wife both of whom were important in the early stages of spotify work with many of our founders giving them advice and guidance so we have people that are in the Singapore ecosystem that will be important to where we go. But whether it'll be a billion dollar company next week, next month, next year, I spend zero time worrying about it. We just try and spend time helping people build something important. Okay, that's great. Well, I was looking out for like some tips on which stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, no, that's really interesting. And can I uh, perhaps kind of focus the conversation a little bit on sustainable development? I mean, when you think about innovation, you know, even at the global forums, like the World Economic Forum, there's a lot of talk about uh, using innovation to address um, sustainable development. There's also on the UN stage, you know, a lot of conversation happening around the 17 sustainable development goals. So in your perspective and from your experience, how do you see Innovate, where do you see innovation going? I mean, what are the lowest hanging fruits when we are talking about solving some of the issues like climate change, energy, <laughs> you know, food, water, energy security? None of those things are low hanging fruit. That's the problem, <laughs> Jessica, is that all of these things are tough. Uh, everybody cares about food safety. And the more we ship food around the world, it's harder and harder to know where it was, who's done what with it. And so as an example, you can easily buy a milk product from Australia in Singapore. And you would say, that must be a good quality product because let's trust that it's, it's the right production. But the challenge is it's then handled by half a dozen different intermediaries between when it left the farm and when it reaches the store shelf here in Singapore. Was it kept at the right temperature? Was it always handled in the right way? All, all of these really important issues, but they're not technically complex, they're just important issues. But the challenge is, going forward, do I know what I'm consuming? Do I know where it started? Has anything happened to it along the way? We'll continue to be 
a difficult problem and an important problem. So what we want to do is think about how can science and some of the technical issues that we've spoken about, like Internet of Things, how do we monitor? How do we know where something was? We can sequence the DNA and, and have some ways of knowing it was this farm and it was handled properly. So it's not a low-hanging fruit as much as it's an important societal issue to know that the things that we're taking into our bodies are going to be healthy and important for us. Then we want to think about the fact that we can monitor ourselves. Um, I'm one of the people that likes to know more about myself, so I'm having more of these microbiome tests, as in what's my gut health, because more science tells us that we can improve our health by what our gut is doing. Mm -hmm. But the problem is we know how to capture a lot of information. We don't know as much about what to do with it once we capture it. So we just had a medical panel the other day in which a couple of doctors were saying, you could bring me a lot of data about what you're doing, but the drugs that we have available, the treatments we have available are still relatively standardized for huge groups of people. So you might know a lot about one person, but the treatment is still aimed at big groups of people because that's kind of how we have to do it today. So I think, how do we think of health on a smaller and smaller scale? How do we think of food safety? How do we think of better use of our energy resource? We don't want to produce more energy. We want to use what we have more efficiently. How do we think about public safety, transportation? Uh, we cannot continue to all jump in cars and drive around because inevitably in a densely populated place, that's going to be a bigger and bigger problem. We have as much land surface in Singapore dedicated to roads as we do to housing. So in the future, we don't want to give away spaces for housing and hospitals and schools to have it be a paved road. So we have to think about how to have more efficient transportation. That means autonomous vehicles. People are naturally uncertain about what that might mean. We have to prove that it's safer than humans that we don't know driving next to each other at 100 kilometers an hour. So a lot of this is the adoption of society more so than it's actually about the tech itself. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. There are two things I want to pick up from there. First, you mentioned data. So, you know, in terms of big data, there's a lot of conversation about how do we harness that for, for good, for improving society. Do you think that there are any examples in Singapore, Asia, where big data has been, um, you know, kind of really harnessed in a very effective way to solve some challenges? Uh, I think the challenge is it's not really visible to people. The answer is yes but it's not really visible to people. So big data and understanding healthcare, back to the point that we just touched on, uh, some of the science for what treatments might need to be for citizens with diabetic conditions, for example, since diabetes is a problem around the world, including in Singapore. So a lot of the big data research might be getting uh, some of the medical information from thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of people, anonymized, of course, but how does that then inform research and treatment in order to make things more effective for those that might have that condition or are likely to have that condition if we don't do something about it? That's not necessarily visible to the, to the person on the street, but there's a huge amount of work going on behind the scenes to try and use some of these big data sets to improve the quality of the research that leads to better treatment. Same thing for public safety. When you think about millions of people passing through airports every year, whether in Singapore or the UK or anywhere else, big data 
has to be used a lot. How do I understand through facial recognition? How do I use some predictions to know whether somebody coming from a certain place might have a different risk profile than someone else? So there's a lot that goes on today. But if we were to sort of sit down and talk about it with the person on the street, it may not feel to them like it's making a huge difference in their life. You know, it is, is the quality of my shopping experience better? Uh, that's also a big data. You know, the idea that 100,000 people just like you liked this particular book is how Amazon and Apple make recommendations or Google does predictive search. When it finishes your sentence halfway through, you type in a search bar. Uh, so that's all big data. Mm, that's really interesting. And Amazon now, you know, they have the stores so you can just go in and yeah, you know, and walk out groceries and walk out. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing, I think. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about the positive effects of technology, right, and innovation. But of course, you know, there's been a backlash to that as well. And I think there's a lot of um, underlying anxiety about AI and deep tech and how technology is going to take over the world, so-called. Um, I mean, where do you think the anxiety is coming from, and is it, you know, kind of justified? Is some people are arguing that technology is going to even, you know, accentuate income inequality, the haves and the have-nots. Mm -hmm. Where would you stand on that? Um, I, I think it's a difficult one to answer because it's not as easily segmented into a sort of a yes, it will, no, it won't. I think the answer is a bit of both. Mm -hmm. uh, I think like anything in human history, technology is both uh, a great thing and a challenging thing. Right? So I've sometimes show when I give uh, speeches on stage, I'll show a picture of a factory in the late 1800s or early 1900s. And there's people as far as the eye can see with hammers or you know doing whatever it is that they're doing in that particular picture. And then I show the same picture 25 years later and there's fewer people, but a lot more machinery. And the answer is the technical advance or the technology advance made that better, safer. Uh, fewer people were hurt and the conditions were better because it wasn't considered a quote-unquote sweatshop. Uh, but that means that there was some jobs displaced. <laughs> then you can fast forward again and that same picture shows almost no human beings but rows and rows of robotics. But the idea that that's uh, a bad thing, I disagree with because I think it, as part of human evolution, there's always this continuing uh, move forward, or we, we wish for it to be a continuing move forward, this idea of progress. So uh, I think that will just continue to be the case. Uh, when you think about what artificial intelligence will do, the, in, the intent is that it, in the near term, should be thought of as supplementing, complementing. Uh, for sure, if I went to a doctor and I wanted them to have the very best knowledge of what might be my treatment, I would love for them to be using artificial intelligence to screen millions of pieces of medical research that are produced every year that no human can ingest. I mean, a, a human doctor, even if he or she was working around the clock, couldn't read more than a few dozen articles a month in addition to their current workload. But there are millions of pieces of information produced every year. Mm -hmm. So the question is, wouldn't we all collectively want to rely on AI to bring that deeper reflection to the human doctor to guide that person in our treatment? My answer is yes. Some people say, well, I don't want to speak to a machine. I don't see a future in which we go to the doctor and there's some sort of, uh, you know, nameless, faceless machine staring at us and, you know, we don't have any human interaction. I see it very much as assistive intelligence, augmented intelligence. People use some of these words instead of 
artificial intelligence. So I like to think of AI in that context. Uh, will it mean a displacement of jobs? For sure. I think it's inevitable. I, I'm not sort of as far over on the side as saying we'll all be sitting and thinking of French uh, Renaissance painting because we have nothing else to do. But I do think that the idea of continuously moving up the value chain, if we can think of digging ditches without having to ask human beings to do that work, to use a crude example, I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it allows people to move into other more higher value areas. We have to think of food production mm -hmm. in different ways. We have to think of yield of food in a different way than just consuming more and more arable land. Uh, obviously, the issue recently in Cape Town about supply of water is yes. a crisis. Yeah. We have to think about using the resources that we have more efficiently. And so for me, the uh, input of technology or the ability to utilize some of these new and emerging tools, I think is not only important, I think it's critical mm -hmm. in order for us to tackle these inevitably difficult problems that we're, we're facing. And not 100 years from now, mm -hmm. five years from now, 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you to some extent. You know, but the thing is with technology, sometimes it gets it wrong. I mean, if you look at things like, you know, the algorithms that are um, spreading fake news, for example, or Facebook algorithms promoting rape threats, you know, sometimes that machine, you know, is, is not um, a force for good, you know, and in that kind of situation, what, I mean, how do you think we should respond to that? I think it's always important. I, I mean, back to the point that there's always two sides to every discussion. And you could argue that this sort of automation on the one hand is good, but if misused is bad. And I think that's a fair statement. Uh, we recently had an event at our place talking about this idea of ethics in AI, uh, unintentional bias that, that is introduced into algorithms, because at the end of the day, algorithms are, at least for now, in many cases, written by people. Mm -hmm. And so whether willingly or, or unknowingly, they introduce their own bias. But I, I don't look at that as a reason for running away from something or, or not wanting to embrace it. I think it's one of those where it's best that we look clear eyed into it and say, okay, what, what do we do about this? So when there was the recent example, maybe two years ago, when I say recent, where there was the chatbot that learned profanity, but you take it offline and, and you say, how can we improve? Right. Let me use a quick example on the automobile. Mm. The automobile, let's just say for easy math, was introduced in the early part of the 20th century, sort of at a, any real level, early 1900s at scale. But there was not an airbag or a safety belt or even a padded dashboard for some decades after it was introduced because those were points of learning. And so as more and more data came out that these were problems, this is when safety belts came into effect and padded dashboards because people kept cracking their head and airbags and anti-lock brakes. So these things came after decades of the vehicle being on the road mm -hmm. and data that said we have to improve it. Mm -hmm. So I look at this as the same thing. If a chatbot goes wrong, if a decision tool goes wrong, we're not going to have an Armageddon. We're going to have to say that's unacceptable to us as society and we need to make a change.
Mm. Yeah, I think it's, we really live in interesting times. It's constantly evolving, and even you know, Facebook and Google, I think, are responding to you know government requests on how to change their yeah. algorithms or to be, um, you know, a force for good rather than being used for things like influencing elections. Or that's right. Uh, Zuckerberg came out and, and made a statement about some changes, and the stock market in the near term reacted negatively and said, "Gee, is that going to change how your ads and your revenues are generated?" But to give Facebook credit. They confronted the issue and said something has to change. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important for us to understand that in any case, there's always going to be a this isn't what we wanted moment mm -hmm. or set of moments. And then what we do is say, what do we fix? How do we fix it? Airplanes being an example. Mm -hmm. No matter how hard we try, things don't work out sometimes. Mm -hmm. But that's why the black box is there, because they go back and rigorously understand what went wrong and how do we make sure that we've dealt with that particular challenge. And so I think AI will be the same or autonomous vehicles will be the same, as in things won't work out the way we'd want it. But this idea that somehow uh, to use these sort of iRobot Hollywood movie or Terminator. And I think that's where people become fearful. Mm -hmm. The idea is I've watched a movie. It shows that robots go crazy. And the next thing I know, they kick the door in and, you know, march me out of my home. And I, I don't see that. I don't want to be naive, mm -hmm. but I don't see that. Mm -hmm. I, I see that there will be things that are undesirable mm -hmm. where something goes wrong and we say, OK, we have to introduce a blah, blah, blah scenario, but I don't see it as being the end of humanity. I'm not a believer that this would be the end of humanity in the way that I know some people have articulated it. <laughs> That's funny. So not like X machine where the robot kills her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is one of those things where I know some people say, you know, the last thing that we invent as humanity is the self-learning machine, because then it goes on to learn without us and we become That's irrelevant. Right. Uh, I don't see that. I do think that we have an unknown set of things that will occur. I, again, I don't think that we can plot a straight line that says it will be just like this, but that's never been the, the rate of technical improvement in any event. If you think of Orville and Wilbur Wright and you know going for 14 seconds at Kitty Hawk, and it was, what, 70 years, less than 70 years later mm -hmm. that we were launching a a rocket into space. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty crazy in terms of the capability growth. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, over the next two weeks, I will be on an around the world trip that stops in a variety of countries and continents. The idea that I can jump on a plane and say, I'll have lunch here and I'll have dinner there. And then the next day I'll be in a different country is pretty crazy mm -hmm. when you think that it used to take months for people to go from A to B. Mm -hmm. And so I think this idea of artificial intelligence and technical advance will have unknown outcomes, mm -hmm. but I think we deal with that. Mm -hmm. We stay honest about that. Mm -hmm. And where we are not satisfied, we need to confront that mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, let's run away from it. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree with you. And on that note, on a more fun question, this is something that I love <laughs> asking um, our guests, which is, you know, and you touched on it, the film industry and Hollywood and mm -hmm. all these portrayal of the future. Do you have a personal favorite in terms of like book, film, TV program? So here's the way, you know, I thought about this, you know, because I, I figured we'd touch on this a little bit. I, I'm going to take a risk mm -hmm. and I'm going to offer you an example that maybe makes both my case for and my case against, but I but I think it's a truthful answer, mm -hmm. which is Minority Report. Okay, I do think that that is one possible future because I think that's already happening. 
Um, now, not the, the you know, not not the not the idea of you know three <laughs> future stage. seers. No, this is why it's a risk, right? But, but this idea that it's true that any country in the world, any country in the world, the government is expected by its citizens to do a couple of things. One of which, maybe the most important of which, is to provide a safe place. Right? Citizens expect their governments to provide a safe place. And government works hard, any government works hard to do that. Part of that is understanding who's going where and what are their intentions. And the more global our world, where you can, you can jump on a plane and go somewhere in a couple of hours, that's harder and harder to do. So when I say minority report, it's not the dark side of something. It's more this idea of how can we use information? How can we use analytics? to think through and understand where we might have risks that we have to deal with. Now, it could be a traffic problem. It could be a flooding problem. It could be a food shortage problem. It could be a water shortage problem. So these things are, are not thought of so much as in, you know, police abseiling out of a helicopter to stop a crime before it occurs. But that is also what happens today, is it not? Which is you would want if somebody has an intent to commit a terrorist act, you want the police to abseil out of a helicopter and prevent it from happening. Mm -hmm. And I see that not as Singapore, but any country in the world. And how does that happen? It, it happens through some of the technology that we're discussing. And will that become less in the future? No, it, it has to continue to be the way. So now I think of it as the operating, system, operating system of the, of the city, uh, of the whole country, of any country. What happens when this car comes to a stop at this light? What are the implications for the bikeless and bicyclists somewhere else in the city? And I think those are the things that we have to think about. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Cape Town example is an example where I guarantee city planners were saying, if we run out of water for this period of time, what are the implications mm -hmm. on society? Because it doesn't take long for society to break down if people feel that their lives are at risk. So. I think Minority Report thought of as using data to have the best possible, safest possible, most stable, harmonious possible place is, is probably a truthful view into the future. Mm, fantastic. Now I feel like I need to rewatch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to wrap up the podcast, you know, I mean, this has been such an interesting conversation and obviously innovation is such a huge topic. But what is that one idea that you are most excited about and, and what is your hope for SG Innovate? Uh, our hope right now is we want to encourage people to think about a positive impact that they can create through their ideas, their expertise, which is We'd like to think of ourselves more as mission-led, to use the example. So many people have said to me, if you want to create bigger economic returns, then you need to focus on things that are more consumer-facing. You know, go dream up the next amazing, you know, photo filtering app, and then you'll, you'll get the valuation. We'll get that, uh, that mythical unicorn. But that's not our aspiration or ambition, and not because we don't love all kinds of cool things, but because we think for all the reasons we just touched on, mm -hmm. healthcare, food safety, public safety, transportation are much more important to society in the long run. Mm -hmm. And we want to work in those areas, both as SG Innovate and as Singapore. The education and the science 
is there in many cases, but this idea of doing something, how to turn it into something and how to get investors to back that something and how to have consumers ultimately understand. Consumers in the sense of all citizens. If I go to the doctor, am I comfortable that he or she is using this range of tools to better serve me? Today, you think of an X-ray or a CT as just a commonplace occurrence. In many countries, it's not. Mm -hmm. And so how can we improve that care? Mm -hmm. And even where it is, it wasn't that many years ago. So we've taken these things for granted. And my hope is that we'll be able to generate new ways of serving people that improve their longevity and health and happiness. And we'd like to do that from Singapore for the world. Mm, fantastic. Well, on that note, thank you very much for being here at this podcast today. We had a most insightful discussion and I hope our listeners have also learned something today. And we hope to invite you back perhaps in a year or two when solutions from SG Innovate are hitting the world. Happy to share those at the time, Jessica. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you very much. EcoBusiness is the leading media organization on responsible business, clean tech and sustainable development, serving the Asia-Pacific community. This episode is part of the Let's Write the Future podcast series supported by ABB. Join the conversation by visiting us at eco-business.com and subscribe to our newsletter. It brings you interesting news and events from around the region. Thank you for listening and watch out for our next podcast.